0: I stopped making the main thing the main thing which was executing our movement screens really well and running fast and it got to a period where it was like well actually I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing here they're not running fast in the warm-up they're drilling like crap because they're holding a 15 kilo plate they're not it's I'm moving away from what the whole point of this stuff was. <laughs>
1: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is all about using sprinting and speed training as a movement screen. So we've got Tom Tumbleson, who's been at England Rugby since 2014 in various different roles, and now as Senior SNC Coach. Is very much over the speed training and testing side of things, so it's this topic that we dive into. So specifically, using and how he uses speed training as a movement screen. So we go through that warm up process. What drills does he use? What is he actually looking for? How does he utilize his time most appropriately and most efficiently to get as extract as much information out of those? first couple of runs as possible so he can make changes, whether it be him making changes personally or referring out to the medical practitioners who are there in the warm-up to be able to help and facilitate this process. So a really interesting episode coming up with Tom. This episode of the Pacer Performance Podcast is sponsored by VALD. So I'm really proud to have VALD as a sponsor again. And after a recent visit to VALD HQ in Brisbane for their annual VALDCON event, it's incredible to see how far they've come as a company since I last visited uh, at the start of 2018. So from a very humble office of less than 20 employees back then, it's amazing to see how far they've come. They now employ a global team of more than 200 that support clients across 100 countries, including many of the world's elite and professional sporting organisations. So, an incredible uh, rise to where they are now. This is a huge testament to just the impact they're having across the industry with their innovation, but also continued commitment to support clients. So, if you're a performance practitioner, you probably know all about VALD, but if not, I'd recommend that you check them out at VALDperformance.com. Also sponsoring this episode is Play. Play is the leader in high performance athletic floor and strength equipment globally. So with offices in the US, Australia, and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end experience by collaborating with organizations through their own proprietary formula to create a world-class environment for coaches and athletes alike. Play's Achieve 18mm rubber and attack turf has been the cornerstone of training facilities for over a decade, with the addition of the new Icon X rack range, Play are once again set to elevate the industry. If you're interested in knowing more about Play, check out their website, play.us, that's P-L-A-E dot So without further ado, over to the episode with Tom. Tom Tumbleson, welcome to the Pacing Performance Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you.
0: Morning, Rob. Pleasure's mine.
1: No, thank you for coming on, mate. I really do appreciate it. So, before we get into the meat of the conversation, which is going to be around speed training, testing, game speed, all stuff that people out there are mad for right now, would you mind just giving us a bit of a bio on you?
0: Yes. So, I'm currently I'm Senior Strength and Edition Coach within Rugby. I've been with the union in various guises since 2014. Um, prior to that, I was at the um, working in Super Rugby with the New South Wales Waratahs um, um, for a good period. Got to Australia 2009 when I started there. I was, I was playing there, working at Sydney University and then I, I managed to snag a role at Waratahs. Had a good stint there, which got me um, into the, the English team. 2014. Prior to that, I was, a, I was a wannabe player. Um, with knowing, in the were you really good, it, Tom? Must have been all right. Um, I, well, no, I, I yeah, played I played at a good level. Most of my um, my rugby was sort of semi professional in the championship in England, um, and also shoot shield in Australia, which is a really good standard. It's kind of the level below super rugby. I played England Sevens for a couple of tournaments, um. So, yeah, I mean, good enough to, good enough to know... I think, you're playing this, I think you're playing it down, Tom. Oh, mate. I actually played on the weekend um, in an alumni world, and I was disgusted with myself. Like, all these little 20-year-old whippets zipping around the 40-year-old me. Um, I could have been better, mate, which is one of the reasons I was a coach. I came became a coach because I was pretty dissatisfied with how you were looked after back then. And the pursuit of... Um, Trying to be better led you to do your own investigation and research and do your own things. So that kind of all got rolling as to think, oh, maybe I should do that as a career because I'm probably better at that than the, you know, but I'm better at that than the people I'm, I'm trying to play with. So um that's actually what fueled the passion, really. That search. We didn't get a lot of that provision when I was when I was in the academy or even coming through the systems, not like you get now, and I, I, I don't love that. I love the sort of support you get now. But you know, strength and conditioning wasn't a problem for me. I was I was a pretty good athlete, but and that's where my bias is laid. I I needed to go elsewhere. I need to spend time with a psychologist and a, a bloody skills, skills skills coach more often tackle coach.
1: So how did you get into the England setup? What was who was who was in charge at the time? How, what was that transition into the England setup like?
0: Stuart Lancaster. And it was I just it was real the real formal process. Um, they, offer, they advertise on Sport England, and I just went through the normal process. So there was no sort of "job for the boys" thing. It was a r- rigorous process. Did loads of interviews. Um, I was in Australia at the time, and we just won Super Rugby. So perhaps the appeal there was that an English an English boy could just had an experience like that in Australia. We had a really good team, plenty of Wallabies. It was Michael Checker's regime, and it was a it was a good institution. So maybe that was the appeal. That must have been the appeal. It wasn't the haircut, but. um that was, that was it, really. I mean, I knew a couple of people in the system, so there was a link there, but, yeah, it just went through the pathway.
1: And bringing it more to the present day, just back from the World Cup, which seems to, like I said to you before, seems to have gone on for forever, probably seems more so for you who's, who's been in the thick of it. From the outside and press-related news over-delivered, what was the experience like?
0: It was it was um, it was a bit of pressure going into it before we got to France because our form was off, and we were pushing the lads hard, and they weren't they didn't express themselves as perhaps as well as they could in the summer because for various reasons we were we were still forming, we were training real hard. We get we got to France, our first game against Argentina was a real that was an England game an England performance that all of the lads all of the the old stages and the and the young blokes really performed, and from then on we had a lot of momentum and it was a real enjoyable experience. You kind of felt like, you know, we're in it now. The boys have got the, you know, the bit between their teeth. We're starting some kind of tapering process. Their energy's coming back and we're starting to, you know, bear the fruits of our labour. And they were they were getting more cohesive each game. And it was, you know, France itself was a great experience.
1: In, when you're there are you very much in a management not management of people and staff but in managing the player mode because you have a week between each game don't you so in that week how much do you actually get done which is the core reason you're there as a senior s coach or are you just managing guys for the next game to try to get them there
0: well I think in previous regimes it's probably been like a 24-7 experience where you're round the clock supporting them this this tournament was a bit more work. Like, had more like a work and home life balance. We weren't at home, but we're home from home. So, we'd go to the facility, we'd do all of our work there. Then we'll come home, and there'll be no meetings or any extra stuff there apart from the medics who might be treating. You'd play, you'd get into your casual clothes, and then you'd, you'd you'd get your head away from the game, which is what you have to do if you're going to be in camp for that long. And it was it's a smart way to do it because it, it allows you to refill the batteries in the evenings. And make sure that when you're off days, you, you generally have off days. So it, well, it's not as all-consuming as perhaps other tournaments have been. We're in really good venues where there's plenty to do. Like nearly, there must be about 40 to 50 of us who've now got in possession with paddle tennis that we can't get rid of. Because there was all, there, there's courts there everywhere and everyone's obsessed with that now. And um, family were close by, so they were they're were in cl- um, close proximity. So there was a good good blend and balance but the fact that they're in camp means that if you need to do extra stuff, you can, and it's there. And a lot of lads do. If, they, if we're next to a gym facility, they're, they're doing more bits and bobs. You, you can help them if you need to. So you've got that flexibility. But I think the blend that we got right there was pretty good.
1: So I know there's a, quite a contrast from the, the last tournament. In terms of the, the player experience, and the, your experience, obviously, but the, in terms of the player experience, how was, did that go down? Because I'm guessing it's quite a contrast, like I say, or like you said.
0: Yeah, well, I mean the setting was obviously very different. In being in Japan, where it's you're not you're not quite as accessible. Like if when we were Miyazaki four years ago, there's not much you can't really get out. It's a beautiful place, but there's not much to do outside of the, the hotel. Whereas France, like I said, we were in the 2K, and that's like a sports town. There's places to eat and bikes and good shops and sports everywhere. It was it was bloody good. So. It was a different experience, location, location, location. It, it, it very much was dependent on that.
1: Class. What's expectation? I know mean, it's a long time away. What is expectation as you kind of move forward into the next four years?
0: Well, we've had three retirements um, after the last game and everyone else looks, looks like they're still in it. And we've got some really good young lads like Theo Dan Henry and like some real really good players that are going to just get better and better and we've got a, we've got that middle tier of player that's got like 10 20 caps that really start to you know really feel like they've got their groove with international rugby as they get to like 40 50 cap internationals so it's really encouraging and um even just watching premiership this weekend like I watched four games i think and there's like, oh, well, that player's pretty good. He's t- he's becoming good. And this guy here, like, wow, he had a real good game. And these guys are all 21, 22 years old. So personally, I'm I'm pretty excited. Um, there's some guys that can do some really good stuff going forward. I'm sure of it. Yeah.
1: Happy days, right, mate? Crooks of the conversation, speed testing and training. Let's 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 dive in. So one of the presentations at the the March conference of the Sports with Speed conference in March. Was Jonas Dodu. I know he's been involved with with you guys quite a bit over the over the years. And one thing that he presented on was using sprinting as a movement screen. And I wanted to get your take on implementing that day to day, week to week, month to month with a large group, and what this actually looks like in practice. Would you be able to give us your view of of that question and and take it as far as you want, and we'll we'll dive in um, probably multiple times off the back of that.
0: Yeah, so we we do use um, sprinting as a movement sh- screen as thoroughly as we can. Doing it as a group is difficult, but so what we we'll tend to do is identify players at the, the beginning of each campaign or week to week that we'll use, that we'll have eyes on and use a, the uh, the sprinting movement screen for. And, it, and it's gonna, it, it looks a little bit like this. So if we've got a player that's coming in with a chronic um, injury or a niggle that, that we feel that sprinting can... Help us identify any fluctuations in their in their daily state, or if we've got someone that has had a let's just say a limited return to play process, and we want we need to be quite diligent diligent on them and how they're preparing and ready to play. We'll use the speed warm up as a movement screen, but a lot of it's the preparatory work done before the speed session starts. So let's say for example. In our facility, we've got a 3G and we've got some tumble matting and quite a big area. The lads before we start training, they will start doing their movement prep and they'll be doing drills and they'll be doing dynamics and they'll be getting up to doing almost like a a scissor bleed or a dribble bleed indoors before they go outside. And we'll we'll have staff on hand like myself and the medics who are pretty good these days with running mechanics. They they can pick things up. They've got a good coaching eye. We'll basically be on spot. Very much like the, the the performance therapy concept that that Dan Perth and Altis use, we'll be looking at them to see if any drills that they normally perform, if anything's sticking out like a sore thumb, or if players feeding back to us that things aren't quite right. Like the players are pretty good now. Like if someone's got a, a locked hip, or their foot's not feeling right, or or their shoulders bunged, and will either they or we. We'll chat to the meet rep and just pick up pick up on it. Now, this might be five or six players. Not everyone is doing this. Some lads just do, do their work. They've been playing for weeks, they do their work and they leave. But in the event that something does stick out, we're all on hand. And let's just say something's been picked up. There's all these things in this space that they can use. They can, whether that be therapists on hand, whether it be all of the literary of mobility or self- myofascial release techniques that we've got at hand, whether it be sticks, rollers, balls, weights, um, RPR, massage guns, bands, all the things that kind of self-calibrate that allow you to go back in and check and retest to see how they're moving. We've got staff at hand as well. So it's, it's quite an organic process and it's quite unique to each player, depending on our understanding of them, their history and their interaction with us as well. It's It sounds... It's, it sounds like it's like a Formula One pit stop, but it's a bit more. It's a bit more fluid than that. So then they go out on the field, and then we might do our actual speed prep, our formalised speed prep, which could range anything from twenty-five minutes in a World Cup camp to four minutes, if if the lads have been well prepared, because they're pretty good these days. They get well prepared. Like you could argue, a lot of lads don't even need a speed prep. They, they get they're so well burst to prepare themselves to be up and running, you just need a primer or some kind of activation moment. If that's the case, we'll tend to have one medic um, behind the boys, so they've got a frontal plane view and I'll tend to stand on the sides so they've got sagittal plane view. And I'll just look at the drills that the lads do every single day to see if anything's any aberrations are sticking out like like dogs balls. And they might just go one after the other I'm not. I'm not so skilled that I can look at everyone sprinting maximally, 14 ads at once, and go bang, bang, bang. I just can't. I'm. I'm not down path. I can't do that. But I can do it with a scissor bleed. I can do it with a dribble bleed. And if I'm looking at four people instead of 14, to see if any of the work we've done 15 minutes before or the day before, if seen anything and is sticking out. So I tend to look at three drills, and so does the med. Um, so does. Um, our medical team behind and we'll see if anything is really going out of its bandwidth and you should, you'll see me, I'm squinting like this to see if what kind of shapes and manoeuvres and patterns are not quite like they used to be the reality is we don't have a lot of time to intervene right there a lot of that stuff should be done indoors when you've got time, because we don't have meetings that go straight into the field, there's there's time to prep beforehand but if something's really is sticking out, then you do have an opportunity to talk to the coach and go, this guy's not quite ready yet, we need a he needs a bit more treatment. He needs a little bit more care here, TLC. Can we? Can you give him five minutes? And those and those guys are normally sh- sweet with that because they know we've been thorough beforehand. It's not like they walked in with a coffee. They've tried to warm up and they weren't. They weren't right. They've done their due diligence beforehand. If something's still not right, it means you just you're just being smart. So that's that's pretty much the process rob it's like i said it's very bespoke to individuals it's not en masse and we'll pinpoint these people before the session who we're going to look at and who we're going to keep an eye on and they tend to be case studies that start at the beginning of each each campaign
1: you mentioned those three drills you may have said it already so if you have apologies i was probably scribbling some notes down what are the three drills that you typically use
0: so some kind of pogo or or jump rudiment that might be a a single leg or a bilateral pogo, whether it be forward to back, sideways, diagonal. And we're looking, there's different, there's different like lists we've got there with what we look out for on each drill. So for example, with pogos, you're hiking at the hip. Are you able to compress enough and dorsiflex or are you just trying to pull yourself off the ground? What's, what are you like left to right? If we know that someone's got a, a left or right issue where maybe they're, they're guarding one side, what are the arms doing in that situation? Are they sitting back? What's their height like? Do they look flat on the ground? Like, How much are they yielding? Those types of things that, again, we've very much been influenced by um, Dan Pfaff on that one.
1: I'm just going to jump in, Tom. So do you have a, a standardized list that you and the other staff would kind of check off? Or is that very – okay, perfect.
0: Yep. We've got there now. We've got yep. there now. Yep. But it used to be just like, oh, shit, what looks bad? But yeah, now okay. we've got, we've got a, we do have a checklist for the drills now. And those ones I've just mentioned there, but um, let's just say if we're talking about scissors, uh, like a scissor bleed, that might be like the ability to dorsiflex when, when they've hit their sort of – they've blocked their thigh in front of their body. If let's just say that that's looking different to a normal and they're plantar flex and they don't have that mobility and that sort of that posterior, posterior sling, hey, hey, this guy's looking a little bit restricted here. We're running fast today. We might need a little bit more help here. And then might go to a medic or even me if I can help. It's just one of those things. It's just a landmark that you can use as a reference for that person that stays consistent. And if it goes well outside of that like standard deviation, that subjective standard deviation, then you know this doesn't look quite right here. But other examples would be um, the, the head axis in a, dribble, in a, in a scissor bleed Are they sitting back? Are they over-rotating as they hit the ground? What the, what the contact point on the floor when they do the scissors, the speed across the ground, are they able to displace vertically as they do them if we're doing a straight leg scissor bound? Are they pushing through the floor if they're doing a bent knee scissor bound? I mean, it, that's, that's got a checklist as well as the dribbles and then finally, um, sorry, the scissors, but then we've got the same for the dribbles. And then if we really know our lads well, some of those points are more specific to some players than others. Like we know, one player—if he can't dorsiflex when he when he does a scissor bleed—he's got some restrictions posteriorly. We know that's a big thing for that person. That's a flight for that person, and I'm not. I'm not it's not like we sit down there with a clipboard checking it all off it's just something i know this guy now i've been i've been with him for five or six years this is a, something we look out for and then you see him run past during season you go yeah he looks he looks on today and, it, and it's, it's a feel thing like it's not it's not really really clinical but with like I said with um myself and bob stewart who's the head of medical we've been with the lads for seven eight years now and we kind of know what their what their alerts are and then our challenge now is when a new lad comes in in four weeks, what's his alert gonna be? And it takes time to to understand that. That's where you gotta try and build that relationship really, really quickly. And any tell you can get from the clubs prior to them coming in, that's really important as well.
1: This this area, I think, and this from my experience and, and speaking to other people, this kind of topic, especially when either you talk about it or Jonas talks about it or Alan Murdoch or whoever, is probably quite daunting for a younger coach to go okay i'm going to put on this i'm going to put on this particular drill even if it's four athletes they're moving pretty quick even in these drills versus you know max velocity sprinting to identify these points that you're going to you know action that doesn't look right like that that's that's quite a daunting task from your experience in starting this process what advice would you give younger coaches or less experienced coaches to start off going through this and getting to the point where they're they're developing and not a checklist, you're not going down and, and and doing that, but in the head creating that process.
0: Yeah, it is, it is Rob, like and the reality is you've got to know the body really, really well. And you've got to be really atop your biomechanics. So there's a fair bit of study required on this one. And I, again I was I keep on saying um, Dan Pfaff, but I was very much influenced by his technical model. And without that, I would have just been scratching around in the dark. So you need to you need to have an idea about what is ideal so you know what is un, you know what isn't ideal but my advice would be is just start real simple and have just start on a real basic layer and pick something for each player that you know you can use as a monitoring tool much much like your musculoskeletal screens in the morning whether you're doing a groin squeeze or a knee to wall what's that what that one thing that you look out for that player that you know is off then you need, to, you, need, you need to do something about it as opposed to trying to cover all of these different sort of kinematic landmarks for all the players all running fast. That will, that will never happen. I just, I kind of had three levels. Like I just, like I said, I squint my eyes and just look at the basic rhythm of the player and see if anything's off. And then if everything's read or everything's not, the second layer will we'll sort of kind of get the input from behind about if there's anything going on left V right. And quite often, there sometimes we have film, film in the moment if we've got time. Or like there's some tablets out there or, or even a, an iPhone on a tripod. And that gives us a little bit more input if someone's listening or if someone's rotating funny or their recovery pathway is not quite right on one side when it, when it normally is. And that's, on the, that's in the moment. And then the third layer is probably retrospective after training we then go and look back at it and we look at the video ourselves and really have a big, big, deep dive. If let's just say someone had to keep getting treatment during training or he felt off, we'll try and use a retrospective process to try and then make the next day better and try and tweak what we did in the prep phase. But my advice for people starting out is just starting that real basic l- layer. Just look at general rhythm and just pick some, one thing for each person, not each person, just put one thing for maybe a couple of your bell cows, who are your case studies that you really need to be eyes on and not try and do too much. And then just dive into kinematics and kinograms and be obsessed with looking at footage and test your ability to look at things in real time. Well, I mean, I, when I watch um, rugby now, I stop I stop the TV and if someone's running a try, and I'll almost just use that as an opportunity to look at running mechanics and see if I can pick things up, send it around to my mate. Um, or anyone in my network and go, what do you think about this? I don't even know the player. The player doesn't know us, but we're just having a bit of a, a nose off with regards to seeing how, how we can test our ability to pick up on things. It's practice. It really is. And you start to see things after a while. And um, people, how did you see that? I go, I don't know. You just kind of saw it. But you just saw the rhythm and the shape and you saw, you know what you're looking out for in the first place. And I'm not an expert. But I really am not. There's much more proficient people at it than me. But you do start to th- see things.
1: Do you use any tech in this process in this process or have you used any tech in this process?
0: Yeah yeah so um, if we've got if we've got the tablet on and we're looking at someone videoing we video an acceleration or a top speed run from behind all like we'll use huddle which is which has got a really really easy tracking system like you can design kinograms really easily you can notate them with angles and you know landmark different joint positions that's a real real easy bit of tech for us huddle which used to be um i can't think one it used to be now but um that, that's the easiest one for us dark fish back in the day
1: so it's good to get go a very quick break in the chat with tom hope and enjoyed part one so over in part two we have a little chat around his weight room philosophy and how that has changed over time and how it influences or how it has been influenced when speed training and speed development is the goal so really interesting part two coming up This episode of the Pace of Performance podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. TeamBuilder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16-plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientists to help manage and analyse data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. And now back to the episode with Tom. I know you mentioned and I'm sorry to dumb this down even further and, and eke more out for these kind of younger coaches who are daunted by this process. Is there one particular thing that may be useful for these coaches to grab onto and, and use as that one thing? Like what drill would you recommend and what would you ident- try to identify to be that first kind of step into this process?
0: I'd pick like the, the drills that we use there. Those um, pogos or rudiments, the scissors and the dribbles are things that they're going to do every single day, that you're not just going to dip in and out of. Like I have been guilty in the past of doing all these crazy drills and changing them all the time, differential learning, but there was nothing stable to um, hook onto and assess day to day. Recently now I'm probably boring the players a little bit in trying to keep that warm up period pretty stable. So the warm up looks pretty similar. How we get into top speed and what we are doing there might change. They might it's either going to be a wicket or a fly or a, or, a, or a hollow run of some description. But the actual drills are very very consistent. Might mix and match the sequence and how they're doing and, and sort of work to rest and and the zones that they do them in. But it's always a pogo, a dribble, and a scissor. And pick something. Really get good at understanding what the mechanics should that be. And there's plenty of content online about what kind of technical models fit the things you're looking for. There's loads on there, like the educational platforms now that artists and whatnot are doing is vast. So you, you can, and you can know that pretty, pretty easily with a minimal cost. So just pick something super simple and do it daily. So you can practice it every single day. Like exactly like you would do like an FMS or some other kind of movement screen.
1: Is that lack or change from a very variable warm-up and variable training methods to a more stable, solid ground? Is that one of the biggest transitions that you've had in this area over the last, you know, using 2014 and in your start of your England career?
0: Yeah, yeah, because I was probably a bit too conscious of making them fun and energetic you know, when I first joined, I wanted to, I wanted people to think I was the energy giver and all this lot. And there's definitely merit for that, whether it be in the weight room or on the field, but you can still do that with, a, with having, you can still do that while maintaining some stability about the things you want to screen. And because we're not out on the field long to do that period, it might be 10 minutes, like I said, there's still time for other stuff. Like as soon as they go to the get born that happens, we can, we can introduce some fun and joy and some game of gamify the final stage of the warm-up but that's still that those drills i mentioned they can still be stable you might not even do them on the field you might do them indoors we've got a big big area and that's being done off the grid it's not being done as a formal part of training so I i think in recent times i've definitely been more conscious about being disciplined about keeping hold of some of the things that I know can give me a good representation of the lads day to day and not worrying too much about being like the circus jester that's just about energy. You need, you need a blend, don't you?
1: Is that that the case in the weight room as well in terms of your programming there?
0: Yeah. Yeah. We, um, we won't use the movement screen, but we'll use a lot of fun primers. Like we, we're big into, I
1: meant like the the kind of consistent, things that rather than jumping around to make things entertaining and, and keep the guys interested, but actually dialing it down to some core things that remain pretty stable throughout the program. Just wondered if that kind of translates to, to wait the well.
0: waiting I think the is a little bit different because we tend to do the um, lift in the afternoon. So they've done their morning work. They might have had a nap and they're coming in at that time of the day where they might be sort of coming down. So we'll, we'll do some... We'll use some primers there. They could be specific with a the ball. They could be complete fuckery, like it might be killer with a basketball or football, tennis, or red ass, or something really just purely about energy. And then we'll come in the come, come in the gym, and then they're ripping in straight away. Like we might have a warm up planned for the gym, and like no, these guys are ready to rip in. Let's just go, and then we'll just spend spend log on the initial build up sets to their first lift. It's probably a little bit different because it's not so. They're not under so much pressure in the afternoon when they're lifting the gym. They're a little bit more relaxed, but they might be a little bit dopey. So that's quite, is it a bit more just about energy giving in that one and sparking them back up. So they're walking in the gym, they've had a right laugh. The energy is insane, and then and then we're into it.
1: What's been the biggest thing that you've added or removed from you? On this, this is going back to the speed side. Added or removed. In the last year, since 2014,
0: well, one of them would be, definitely be the interventions of that therapeutic input um, in our version of performance therapy. The, the inclusion of the medics in that in that process, the stability of the warm-up and the, prep, and the prep phase, like I mentioned, with those those kind of indicator drills that I mentioned, the emphasis and the the focus on the players being really, really diligent with their individual prep time, as opposed to the process of us warming them up. Uh, they very much they very much need to be 80% before we, we start putting our hands on them. And they're very, very good at that now. Not trying to, I think I, I did mention it, not trying to muck about too much with variety and fun and, and social media speed drills that look good, that you might get sent by a player going, look at that, what's that do? Being a bit more, like I said, deliberate, with your warm up, keeping the main thing the main thing, Rob. Like in the past, I've probably been guilty of doing everything but running fast, maybe because of, there was a bit of fear in there, or maybe because I just thought training would look after it. it; it would get covered. So making sure they actually are running fast. Like I think I can remember some times in um two thousand fifteen where I was, I didn't even run fast in speed today. We just did everything but, and I don't even know why. I just it was just one of those things where it was some bizarrely. I just. I mislaid it. It didn't happen. I just thought it was going to happen naturally. So being more constructive with drill design, so things implicitly happen naturally and kind of hard not to happen. And when I'm talking about getting to 90% on a, on a heavy day, that's what I'm talking about, getting up and running properly so they are ready to go. If, if the first action in the drill is a, is a massive kick chase, they're ready for it. They're not using training to get ready. They're They're in. Coaches will not tolerate someone not being ready for that first action and neither should they. Um, other things were just creating the environment that speed is really bloody important it's a, it's a premium here. It's a part of, it's a prerequisite for all players. Like there isn't a player whose role in the game model doesn't depend in some kind of speed or movement, whether that be agility, evasion, acceleration, or top speed maneuverability, marketing the hell out of that. Like I some kind of, you know, car salesman making that important.
1: How have but you done that Tom? An... How have you done the marketing side of that?
0: So I'm gonna, uh, if I name drop a lot, Rob, it's not because I'm um, trying to show uh, my network. It's just because I'd like to reference tell people, you know, reference the people that have been influenced to me because I think that's important. Tony Holler's concept of record rank and publish that's that's worked great for us. Our lads are extremely competitive, and if you put if you rank them in their speed scores or or velocities in the gym or any any. You know what? Any metric, any parameter at all, they go bloody hard on the back of that. How can I get this better? What do I need to do here? They're so competitive, these lads. That's, that works instantly. But ultimately, the lads want to do, play well and they want to be international rugby players and excel. And when you work back from the game, like I just said, good luck being a success if you can't move. If you can't accelerate, get off the line and hit. If you can't chase kicks, if you can't finish tries, if you can't chase people down, if you, if you can't pull away from defenders when you need to. So it's, it's you know, speed's one of those easy things, obviously it's 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 quite hard to argue with a lot of people, whereas some people might resist the need to be, you know, thinking they need to have a bigger work capacity in, in various formats. Everyone, like who, who could argue that speed's important? A lot of people might argue that they can't train it. It's not going to help them. But even if you use it from a, um, a speed warm-up in an, an acute level, it's going to get you ready for the, what's happening in 10 minutes time. You do that well 10 times in a, in a Six Nations campaign, guys are feeling pretty good by the end of it, all being well, if they're healthy. So, you know, we use a bit of theater as well, Rob, like when we have make sure there's loads of screens available in the gym with all the drills up and there's a video loop going on. So it's kind of easy just to nudge them into the right direction. We celebrate it in in any of our debriefs or team meetings, moments where we've wanted them to express their physical abilities and they've done it. So with that celebrated, we used to do an award called the the Running Back Award, where if a player really expressed themselves in, in a way that we've been encouraging them to, um, and they did. They'd get a, um, a running back T-shirt. Let's just say um, we had a, a guy that really liked Christian McCaffrey. We ended up giving him a, a McCaffrey T-shirt and he got the running back award that week. And then the next week, we'd look for moments where guys have done the things that we've asked them to to do and backed themselves and use the skills that they've started to develop in camp. And then, um, you know, one guy got a Mark Ingram T-shirt. And because he was kind of he fitted that Mark Ingram style of running and pace and explosion, so that was that type of thing, like hamming it up, making it important.
1: You mentioned there about players coming to you and saying, "I've seen this drill on Instagram or Twitter or something." Like, come again? Have you ever been sucked into that at certain times, either whether it's via a player or via someone that you know you look up to and you want to get dragging what they're doing? Like, have you ever been influenced that by that, and it's been you've regretted it or on the flip side, have you thought, I'm delighted I did that. That was a really good choice to include that.
0: Yeah, I have done with Jules Rob. Like, you know, when the, um, when like the Franz Bosch influence was really hitting its peak a few years ago, guys were doing stuff with water bags and bands, you know, perturbing all these movements. I started doing that because a lot of those people in that network have consulted with us. And so we've put this this stuff in. I've there was there's been times when I've gone over the top with it, and like I said before, I stopped making the main thing the main thing, which was executing our movement screens really well and running fast. And it got to a period where it was like, Well, actually, I'm not doing what I'm, what I'm supposed to be doing here. They're not running fast in the warm-up. They're drilling like crap because they're holding a fifteen kilo plate. They're not it's i are moving away from what the whole point of this stuff was. But it became fever pitch didn't it everyone was doing it and you hear all these anecdotes about all these amazing results you start getting seduced into it even though you probably feel like you're doing a good job anyway so that's definitely I fell into that trap Um, instances where I've looked at social media and it has worked some of the game speed drills now they're they're everywhere aren't they like um, Dan just put some in in your latest Sportsmith article um, about game speed and look there's some great ideas there Al Murdoch's got ideas coming out of his ass like they come up a lot and I like to go to other worlds to see it like especially American football or soccer and there's been times when I've taken a drill from there and it's gone great guns it's gone brilliantly there's times when I've done it and it's gone down like a fart in a lift it's been terrible and I've like literally had to apologise fuck I just, caveat, I just caveat it at the beginning this could be a massive fuck up boys let's just see what happens here and if it goes up like I've just I've nullified the effect haven't I but um I, I think now you just you do digital. Like I like ideas. I look at it and go, "Can this work? What's the point of this? It looks good. Is it good? You know, is it does it defy our context? I've eaten it pretty hard these days. I don't want to get stuck into that trap.
1: When you mentioned about the the lads getting, to, I think you mentioned eighty percent. Like get it to us, eighty percent so we can do our thing. How have you implemented that to make sure that they? Do you take ownership of that first 80% of their prep? What does that look like? Um, I'm just interested in that whole process.
0: Yeah. So let's just say you've got someone like a Johnny May. He, You aren't telling him what to do. He knows exactly what to do. He's a student already. I'll learn more for him than he learns for me. There's, you might have a young that's come in who's a speedster and um, the first time he trains, you'll watch him see what's going on here and you'll you'll give him, you'll tell him your expectations are that you need to be ready age, but you need to get ready here. There's a certain amount on you to get ready here and you'll watch him do it and If he starts training well and that routine works for him i'm not going to mess around with that if I think for some reason it should be more thorough if someone's struggling and they've not started well, we'll sit down and we'll debrief this and we'll discuss what's worked for him in the past what our expectations are of him and how ready he needs to be for training. And and I'll give him some examples of what we expect him to do beforehand. And he's free to play around with that and experiment, but there's a couple of tent poles in there that need to be achieved. I think if if you tell them what you expect of them and you're very, um, what's the word? Not contrite, but um, if you're very deliberate with that, then... These lads will just will will do that because they don't want to they don't want to train like a bag of shit, and then over time they're free to mould that and customise it a little bit to what they're used to. And then when during this this process in, in the upstairs, like I mentioned before, you can start adding things on the on the hop. Have you tried this? Have a look at this. Just tweak this. Let's give another. Let's do another. Let's do four reps of these dribbles instead of two, and then they start to film a form a plan of what makes them feel good. And let's just say at the end of the campaign when you you debriefing with with how they've gone. So often the lads have gone. I felt I felt really good here. I want to keep this warm up up when I go back to where I'm going back to. That didn't really work for me. The debrief process is really, really, really important. Not just at the end of a campaign, but some lads you might debrief fairly regularly, and maybe even every day on the main days or at the end of each week at least.
1: Who who brought that in? Tom was that just a natural the like deb- a deb- the process? The debriefs, yeah, yeah.
0: We've had a lot of consultations with them. Um, some of the experts in the services over the years, and obviously debriefing is super important there. It's life and death. But debrief process for us allows us to take things out. Like a lot of what I've mentioned here today is about putting things in, isn't it? We're really conscious about removing things that inhibit or just overwhelm the day. So it came about through the need to take things out and understanding what we should take out. And in that process, we kind of illuminated to us what the what the really important things were. We've had consultants over the years who've come in with really amazing deep processes, and um, we've been influenced by them. We we're not in camp every every day. They're at the clubs for two thirds of the year. We don't have time to make mistakes, learn on the hop, and then just leave it till next time. And it's it's my nature anyway to be like that. So I we have a we we do have a. Like a hot debrief and a cold debrief process. And the layers of that, like I said, are more specific to the individual and anyone that's a case study. Like Des Ryan influenced me on that. He's been on your podcast and I've spoken to him about it. And he's got a great debrief process. I use one, I actually use one of his formats, the review process. And um, Dan Pfaff as well has got an amazing debrief process. Again, multi layered. You can be as condensed or detailed as you need to be.
1: We've mentioned the weight room a little bit. Let's let's go back there. So, what's your weight room philosophy when it comes to developing speed?
0: It's it it is I'm I'm fairly academic with it, but I'm trying to be as pragmatic with it as possible. Um it needs to be evidence-based for me. And so we we learned from a lot of the um the, the strength scientists in the in the world that are really good with that type of objective approach. Margaret Johnson at UK Athletics has influenced me quite heavily on on that content. While it is very, um, like I said, clinical in its approach, there is room for a bit of experimentation and a little bit of nuance that maybe doesn't have the evidence base yet. That might be, I don't know, it might be eighty twenty percent. 80% on the things which you know work, try and test and 20%, which might allow for a little bit of room of experimentation. And that will change depending on what type of, you know, what stage of the year we're in. We're not going to do it, you know, four days out from a Grand Slam decider, but there's definitely opportunity for it, you know, if you're not playing or if you've got a bye week or whatnot. It tends to be um, three sort of boxes that that we select we select from you got the, the meat and potato stuff, which is the stuff that the lads have been doing all their careers, which you just need for basic qualities that they've probably got an emotional attachment to that we don't want to take away in an international campaign because it could be damaging. So that would be the meat and potato squats, big key lifts, like there, the heavy push pull, the things that make them feel good, that are a part of their prep that you just don't want to be taken away. And, you know, that they give you some, kinetic understanding about what some of their basic qualities are like and they offer you a chance to, to to goal set over time especially if there's any glaring issues with any profiling that we do when the lads come in quite often some of those those meat and potatoes do have a correspondence to what we might be seeing um, in their running kinetics especially in acceleration that's the main rock that meat and potatoes are kind the vegetables for us are kind of those special strength exercises that are linked to Whatever we're doing on the field, so I haven't said before, but we um, we use View Motion to create our, our kinograms, which are come via Speed Solutions, and that 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 follows that technical model of um, projection, reactivity, and switching, and they have a relationship with certain exercises that that, that push the needle towards more technical efficiency. So those exercises there fit into that, into the, uh, into the weight room philosophy, very, very importantly, and that might be 50% of the program in in an international campaign. The meat and potatoes are covered, but in a sort of an optimal volume, a lot of the special exercises are things perhaps they, we don't think maybe they're getting outside of us that we can offer as a way to create something novel. It, you know they're not really invasive exercises so they do suit that tapering that peaking process if you're getting the latter stages of a campaign and they're unique in that they're quite individual to what the players work on are for their running mechanics so they feel like they're covering everything they're covering on the field they're covering it in the gym and it's not just a cookie cutter approach I'm not saying other people do that but that's our way of trying to make that quite specific to the stuff we want them to do on the field which ultimately leads to the game model that's the second box and then the third box is is it's the it's the myofascial exercises that danny foley mentioned to you on your podcast a few few weeks ago and i'm really into that at the moment i think that's a, a big open window for exercise development that's got me quite excited because i think there's something in it and these are just general big movements that follow that myofascial approach. They target the, the myofascial slings or trains, well, you know, the Thomas Myers trains, if you want to call them that. And they, I'm finding some good results for them. Like they're making players, they're helping players feel good, which is the main thing and the approach that we, when we introduced that in the world cup, we got some really good, good benefits from that. that were actually were quite surprising they're, it they're not like silver bullets or anything, but they're just a nice little touch that for some people actually could be quite important. There's some lads that don't need to be putting 250 kilos on their back weekly. There's some lads don't. If they're older, they've got that training age, that third box there. That that's something that we think's a bit of an untapped avenue.
1: We've had a couple of people on the podcast: Nick Lumley, who I'm sure you'll know; um, Corey Schlesinger, who was in the NBA at the time. Moving more down this kind of adaptation-led approach, which has led them to utilise more machine-based. Um, exercise selection versus your big kind of core lifts that are just there because they've always been there. What's your What's your thoughts around that? Have you Do you use machines at all?
0: You know what? I'm no. I mean, okay. Depends if you're calling pulleys and and, uh, like Versa pulleys or iso-inertial devices, machines. We we use plenty plenty of them. I'm I'm big into those formats. Actual machines like hammer strength machines or pneumatic things like um, Nautilus type stuff, then no. We've got a Kaiser squat I quite like. I think it's a good substitute for if you can't do your Olympic lifts because it's you can create a power test there and you can push the dial on on, on your power max in that I, I quite like that I think that's quite idiot proof and you can rip and tear into that and we got I got that from Randy Huntington and Joseph Coyne who were big into that and at the time when we were had a relationship with um, British Bob Slade they did a lot of that as well. but I just think it's a nice plan B the the Kaiser squat. That's probably the only machines we do. I'm I'm very much into movements that have got quite a freedom of of expression. So barbells, dumbbells, kettlebells, very manoeuvrable weights are kind of it for me.
1: We do have game speed things to discuss, but if it's all right with you, I know we talked about this beforehand, we'll get you back and we'll do a full episode with one of the other staff at England Rugby. Who's integrated yeah. within this process? Is that all right?
0: Yeah, it's gold, yeah.
1: Yeah, perfect. let well, well, that, that well. let's, yeah, let's let's do it. And I think because of the involvement with the medics, I think it would make sense, like you suggested, that they're involved as well. Because yeah. based on the things that you've said at numerous times, that forms a you know a big part of the program. So to, to get that integration would be would be superb. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, I've come you for 50 minutes. Anyone that wants to dive into <laughs> 50, not 15. Um, So anyone that wants to kind of get to know you and this kind of stuff you've got going on, where's the best place?
0: Um, So Instagram, that's just my name, Tom Tomlinson. I remember when I first started Twitter, I I had like a a university name. I need to change that, but that's at Tommy Tommy Tomble. I need to be a a professional handle there now, don't I? No. No. I'm all
1: right with that. Bring some personality. I like it. You've got plenty of it.
0: Looks like the king of the king of the wumbles but um, yeah. Twitter, X, Instagram. You know, I'm, I love corresponding with people on email. So Tom at hotmail.com If it's training talk or anything, and you know, performance science, I'm I'm rocket keen. So you could always email me on my domestic email account.
1: Lovely, I appreciate it. Thank you for being so open and so happy to come on and uh, and chat to us about all speed training testing. We're in philosophy, all the good stuff.
0: Yeah, go, mate. We loved it. Love talk, talk, talking shop.
1: Thanks, mate. Speak soon. Tune in to episode 476 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Tom for giving up his time and squeezing him into a schedule post World Cup, which is no doubt um, filled with debriefs and recaps and everything like. that, am just physically recovering. So also big thanks to Tim Builder, Play, and Vald for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support big thanks to you for tuning in I look forward to chatting to you next time